The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, December 19th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a Democratic debate tonight, and I am looking for this, a subtle change in tone. Since the campaign began in earnest, the candidates who are senators have been clear about their position regarding the president and possible misdeeds, high crimes and misdemeanors specifically, to quote erstwhile candidate Kamala Harris, dude got to go. Now, there is a way to pronounce this stance of the got to going of said dude. There is a way to couch that in appropriate political terms and a way to come out and proclaim, yep, I'd convict. As you can hear by Rachel Maddow's question the last time around, Elizabeth Warren is in the, yeah, I'd convict unambiguous camp. Senator Warren, you have said already that you've seen enough to convict the president and remove him from office. You and four of your colleagues on this stage tonight, who are also U.S. senators, may soon have to take that vote. Will you try to convince your Republican colleagues in the Senate to vote the same way? And if so, how? Uh, Of course I will. I always thought that was a little improper, not on the merits, but just in terms of process for a senator to say senators will be jurors. I much preferred Amy Klobuchar's formulation. I have made it very clear that this is impeachable conduct and I've called for an impeachment proceeding. I just believe our job as jurors is to look at each count and make a decision. Prudent, measured, proper, which is maybe why Amy Klobuchar isn't setting the polls ablaze right now. But, you know, you may have noticed that Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham have both come under a lot of criticism for saying flat out, I've made up my mind. I'm not impartial. This is a violation of the oath of impartiality, critics say. But if that's the case, hasn't Elizabeth Warren been doing the same and others too? Let's see how and if the tone changes on all of this tonight. I do have to say overall, I'm very excited to have a democratic debate to look forward to when the absolute worst answers, I don't know, might include a record player, but no one, absolutely no one, will say that anyone else on the stage is less fair than Pontius Pilate. And that alone is why I'm voting Democratic this election. On the show today, you know who's not a Democrat, but was yesterday? Jeff Van Drew. A deep dive into the motivations of one dentist turned politician, but still practicing dentist from New Jersey, who fell into the cavity of partisanship and could not floss his way out. But first, interested in a taxpayer-funded stadium? Taxpayer-funded movie sets? How about empowerment zones? Yeah, it might not be the best idea. Journalist Pat Garafalo is here to discuss his book, The Billionaire Boondoggle, How Our Politicians Let Corporations and Bigwigs Steal Our Money and Jobs. Every year for NPR, when I was a sports reporter, I would go to the Super Bowl and the desk, the editorial desk would say, Mike, how about a story on uh, the economic impact of the Super Bowl? And I would say, there is probably a negative economic impact of the Super Bowl. And every year they'd say, oh, that's interesting. Why don't you do a story? And almost every year, sometimes I would push back and say, I did it last year. But almost every year I would do the story about the supposed economic impact of the Super Bowl, which really, when you look into it, wasn't much of an economic impact at all. And like I said, might have just 
just drawn a lot of visitors away from the zoo. Well, that is just one of many stories that someone who is assigned to a beat knows to be true about, I don't know, let's call them the boondoggles of certain supposedly favorable tax incentives and schemes. There is a new book called The Billionaire Boondoggle, How Our Politicians Let Corporations and Bigwigs Steal Our Money and Jobs. It is written by Pat Garofalo, who also uh, has a newsletter that you could sign up to at boondoggle.substack.com. Hello, Pat. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. How about those Super Bowls, huh? They're like the Super Bowl of boondoggles. Oh, yeah. They're really, really great if you happen to be, you know, the owner of an NFL team and you have and you get one in your stadium. Well, how it works, I mean, how that particular boondoggle works is it seems like there's a lot of economic activity around the boondoggle. It is. But I know of no economist, a good economist will point this out, and whenever they do the calculation about the money injected into the economy, they never count for how much money is offset. So everyone who decides to spend money on, quote, the NFL experience but doesn't go to see a movie is not really adding to the economic health of a city. Exactly. And it's not only that. When there is a big event in your city and you know there are going to be a lot of tourists there and you live there, what do you do? You stay away, right? I, mean, Often, I live yes. in Washington, D.C., and and I know when like the Cherry Blossom Festival is going to be downtown, I am going to be anywhere but there. Um, so what often happens in these situations is that the people who are calculating the benefits of a big event like the Super Bowl, like the Olympics, like anything on that scale, don't take into account the people who actively stay away who would have been there otherwise. I mean, there are so many studies that tell how much sports stadia do not stimulate the economy. Is it, and and the owners of teams will always threaten to go away and there is an emotional connection and people will want their teams to stay, but is there anything complicating this very well-documented negative correlation between tax spending on a stadium and how much that stadium and retaining that sports team helps local economies? There really isn't. I mean, it's funny you get economists to disagree on just about everything, right? And if you've reported on that, you'd know this really well. Uh, this is one of the few things where you get almost 100% across the board. It agreement. does. It does bring people uh, together. <laughs> and, and and not only that, one of my favorite studies on this subject um, is a guy named Dennis Coates went and looked at what happened in cities when major leagues went on strike. So like the, the sport in question isn't happening at that time. He actually found that incomes went up. <laughs> in the city when the sport wasn't being played. Yeah. And, you know, it does unite right and left because from the, the perspective of someone who's left, they might not say, why would a billionaire who owns this team, why should he get our tax dollars? But for a conservative who hates government spending, they don't like government spending and they especially don't like crony capitalism, which is what this is. And we're also seeing, I think maybe when we were kids, we saw it was very hard to argue against the team that threatens to leave. But now cities are saying, you know what, build the stadium yourself or leave me alone, but I'm not going to be sucked in. So I do sense the tide is turning a little bit on this issue. I think a little bit. And also that we're simply running out of places to put teams that, where that they can credibly threaten to leave to, right? Los Angeles for years. They're all going to Vegas, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Um Actually, Vegas is a really interesting example because if I were the, the owner of the Vegas Golden Knights, Bill Foley, I would mm -hmm. be so mad because he went and built his arena by himself, financed it 100% privately. It was a huge success only to see the state legislature turn around and spend $750 million, which will actually probably be closer to $1 billion once you get all the costs factored in, uh, to bring the Raiders over from Oakland. So he must be sitting there with his hands up going, wait, what? 
I, yeah. I could have just held out for this. Or maybe, you know, he's just saying to himself, well, we made the NHL finals in our first year. Good luck, Raiders. And also, it's proof of concept of true capitalism, not crony capitalism. Okay, so here's the deal with Amazon. And in your book, at the time of the writing of the book, you didn't know how their search for HQ2 would play out. A lot of the critiques of bigwigs and corporations, obviously, Amazon is incredibly rich and do not need a tax break. But as I saw, and as I've said on the show many times, I think it was popularly misportrayed in the press because we weren't doing those movie-type incentives. What New York was trying to do was to lure a large company that would be contributing, according to the governor's estimates, something, governor and mayor's estimates, something like uh, $10 billion to the state coffers. Now, we wouldn't be realizing all $10 billion because we'd be giving some tax breaks. And if you, the math is roughly, we'd be giving back back around 10%. So to me, this was exactly like a coupon. We're not getting 100% of the value in, as, as a city and state, but we're getting 90%. And maybe this isn't true, and I'll acknowledge that, but the reason that a business gives a coupon is to get the people in the door and to get some of their money anyway. And if you could make the case that without the tax breaks, Amazon wouldn't come, then it does make sense to give a 10% coupon to get the rest of the 90% of what they were going to spend. What's wrong with my analysis? So I guess two things, um, and I think actually the second argument is probably a better one, but I'm going to start with this first one. When you're New York, I just don't buy on a sort of fundamental level that you need to incentivize Amazon to be there period. It's the Right. So you're saying we didn't need to offer the coupon. As a business, we didn't need to have happy hour. The bar was going to be packed anyway. I'll buy that. And And I think it's really striking that they spent this, they spent a year doing this circus, this auction. And where did they land? The nation's capital and the global capital of finance. Yeah. I would be willing to argue, though, of course, I can't prove it, that they probably had New York and D.C. in mind the entire time. Right. So that's step one. Step two, though, is that All of those revenue and jobs numbers that were tossed around as a benefit are not ironclad, and there was going to be at least some level of ironclad outlay on the part of the state in the form of infrastructure and capital improvements. And I think you only need to look at what happened with Foxconn in Wisconsin to see how Amazon could have gone. I don't know that it would have gone this way, but it could have, wherein Foxconn rolled into Wisconsin and said, we're going to build this giant facility. It's going to have 13,000 blue-collar jobs. Give us all these tax breaks. Donald Trump went out there. Former Governor Scott Walker was, you know, waving flags and having a party. Six months later, Foxconn comes back and quietly goes, oh, you know what? Actually, when we said 13,000 blue-collar jobs, we went 1,000 white-collar jobs in a much smaller facility. So the fact that for very good business reasons, you can't bank on those out-year projections means that I'm really, really hesitant to buy that New York was going to get out of it what they put into it on the front end. Okay, and here's my rebuttal. I agree. Maybe it's the case that New York didn't have to offer a coupon because those people, Amazon was coming anyway with those jobs. That argument is in direct contradiction to your second argument, which is that they weren't coming here with all the jobs. Either they're coming anyway and don't give a discount, or you can't count on them when they say they're coming with jobs. No, it's that the decision to be in a place is based on lots of things, um, and including the state of the global economy and their supply lines and what their business plan is at the moment and the state of certainty in Washington. There's all sorts of stuff that goes into the calculation for why a business should be in a place. But New York was going to make promises based on a particular set of plans that Amazon had 
that it could change. I think in general, the business climate of New York is very, very conducive to an Amazon being there. But you can't bank on any particular numbers and any particular set of jobs and any particular promise because for very good business reasons, Amazon might change its mind in two years. Yeah, but this was, okay, now this is definitely in the weeds. But in the, the New York plans as negotiated by Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo were a lot different from the Wisconsin plans as negotiated by Scott Walker. I mean, Cuomo and de Blasio say that if uh, Amazon didn't come through with you know the majority of what they were promising, they wouldn't get the majority of their tax breaks. And Scott Walker, the deal on paper even beforehand caused a lot of people to look at it and say, well, this is just a terrible deal. Let's also, I will also want to ask you this. In your um, newsletter, you have a picture of AOC essentially taking a uh, victory round saying, oh, you were going to tell me that Amazon wasn't bringing the jobs anyway. This is based on the fact that they announced that a thousand jobs or so would be coming to New York as opposed to the 25,000 jobs they promised. I don't understand why this could be considered a victory lap. I don't think any reasonable person would say that, you know, America's fourth biggest company by market cap wouldn't have any white collar jobs in New York City. And if they do, it's a it's a rejection of uh, the criticisms of the anti Amazon in Long Island City sentiment. I mean, it just shows that you don't need to incentivize them to be there, right? Which I think was AOC. Well, AOC had many points, but one of them was that there's a good reason for Amazon to want to be in, you know, the most important city on earth. But does a thousand jobs versus 25,000 jobs make that point? But the 25,000 jobs were potentially vaporware and the 1,000 jobs are actually happening. Well, I guess Amazon could build this giant facility in Long Island City and not show up. That seems to be kind of stupid. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe. But again, go back to Foxconn. Plans change. Yeah. So in general, I want to know, is the biggest problem with all these boondoggles and all these giveaways, the fact that in and of themselves, they're bad deals, or is it that you're always going to get undercut by a rival, a race to the bottom? In other words, Rick Perry had this whole campaign when he was governor of Texas. He would go on the airwaves of California and he'd lure people to California or try to lure people in corporations with lower tax rates. There are two questions here. One is, is it good for America as a whole? I'd say it's not. But is it good for Texas? Like, if you can do that, isn't it sometimes good for the one municipality that cuts the knees out from the other municipality? I guess it can be. But the problem is what Perry did to get most of those deals through is he would say, you basically don't have to pay taxes and your plants don't have to do environmental review and we'll waive all these other regulations, what few zoning regulations they uh, have in Texas already. And so the things the community ends up giving away on the education and health and infrastructure end wind up hurting them more in the long run than even the jobs that come in, than even the revenue that comes in. So you wind up undermining your long-term growth anyway, just to get the sort of short-term sugar high of the the thing that's coming in. And I honestly don't blame communities that engage in this practice for the most part because they're desperate. And I, I talked to a bunch of lawmakers for the book who said, like, you know what, look, we know this stuff is terrible and we know it's bad, but I have people in my town out of work now and at least it puts them to work in a couple of months and then the costs can be somebody else's problem down the road. And so you sort of see that happening over and over and over again. And eventually the bill comes due and the fact that your schools are falling down becomes a giant problem and no one wants to move there anymore. Those are the sort of out year things that happen that I think even if you get the short term sugar high of the deals makes them really bad. Can there be a national law um, kind of banning this race to the bottom? 
there can be. It would almost certainly be challenged up, down, left, and right. But yes, in theory, the federal government could come in tomorrow and say every state and local tax incentive or is going to be treated as taxable income, taxed at a rate of 105%, and boom, you'd be uh-huh. done with this tomorrow. Okay, so that's how they do it. They'd have to rewrite the federal tax law to consider state tax breaks to be more tr- not more trouble than they're worth, actually not a break, but Literally a cost. more costly, yeah. You'd actually literally have to pay to use them. The other strategy that I've heard is that you could threaten things like highway funding or other sort of federal grants and say, hey, if your state or city engages in X, Y, and Z incentive practice, uh, then you won't get money at the federal level, which, you know, the federal government has used that to cajole states into doing things for a long time now. Um, So that's another strategy for getting at it if you don't want to do the straight up tax it away plan. Right. I guess... It's a, it's far-fetched to think that it would happen because we'd have to live in a world where there, there'd be such popular appeal of that on a federal level. Well, what's the federal level except adding together all the state levels? And therefore, I mean, if it was so popular to do on a federal level, there wouldn't be much call for it on a state level. Yeah, you're also starting to see, and this isn't a federal thing, you're starting to see states band together to, to get rid of these things. Um, pretty famous example that I have in the book is uh, Kansas and Missouri in the battle over Kansas City. They literally called it the border war, where companies were quite literally moving back and forth across the border because the metro area spans the two states um, and collecting tax breaks, literally to just move across town and move back across town. They'd keep all the same workers. Commutes would just change. Um, And the two states got together and finally said, you know, we're we're not doing this. We're going to knock it off. New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania have been kind of talking about doing this since New Jersey's been in a giant investigation of its incentive programs. So there's also that possibility of it seeing it happen on a state compacty level. I don't have a ton of optimism about that just because all it takes is one governor or one legislative chamber to switch hands and then it starts all over again. So a federal level solution would certainly be cleaner. But that is another possibility in the short term is for states to get together. Right, right, right. You need a certain set of circumstances where all the governors can sell to their people that we're not selling out New Jersey residents by working with New York and Connecticut. We're actually helping New Jersey residents, even though my opponent on the campaign trail is saying every day, I'll fight for New Jersey's jobs against New York. I mean, that's a a vulnerable position to be in given the general ignorance of the American voter. And that is the root of this problem is that studies have shown, I'm not just saying this because it like feels right or it sounds right. There are studies out there showing that lawmakers who engage in more corporate tax deal making simply get more votes. Uh, and that makes a certain kind of sense because it is political capital, right? You get to send out the press release saying, I'm bringing, you know, these GE jobs to town. You get to show yeah. up at the the ribbon cutting. Right. The factory opens. There are jobs. It's just like the NBA arena argument. When there's a strike, you could always do the article on the sports bar right next to the arena that has less traffic. But no one's going to assign anyone to do the hundred other bars four miles from the arena that each have eight more patrons who aren't going to the game. Absolutely. I mean, nobody sends a reporter to the movie theater that saw its business triple because I did. (laughs) I went to the zoo in Indianapolis during the Super Bowl. (laughs) The name of the book is The Billionaire Boondoggle, How Our Politicians, Like Corporations and Bigwigs, Steal Our Money and Jobs. The author is Pat Garofalo. You could order it on Amazon right now. Or IndieBound. Hey. <laughs> or, you know, your local independent bookseller. Exactly. Thanks, Pat. <laughs> Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Today, we speak of Jeff Van Drew. Who? Van Drew, the guy you never knew, then he was one of two, 
to not say I do when impeachment was put through. Jeff Van Drew, Democrat of New Jersey. No, he is now Republican representative of New Jersey after being one of two Democrats to vote against both articles of impeachment. In fact, there are only three Democratic members of the House who didn't vote for either article. Rep. Colin Peterson, Democrat, Minnesota, Representative Van Drew, D, now R, New Jersey, and Rep. Tulsi Gabbard, Democrat, Stalingrad. Sorry, that's probably not true. Tulsi Gabbard, Independent, Fox News headquarters. For Van Drew, there was something of a coming out of the Republican closet. This is who I am. It's who I always was. I do not know what that would be called. Maybe it's just best to call it the pro shop, not the closet. But there was Trump and Kevin McCarthy and Mike Pence all glowing to have this South Jersey politician in the fold. And fold he did as he sat there and heard Donald Trump utter such inaccuracies as this. You know, Jeff, we rebuilt our military. We spent almost two and a half trillion dollars on the military. When we came in, the military was totally depleted. I will say the Democrats did not help. They're not into the military at all. Van Drew knew full well that he and most of his Democratic colleagues, in fact, voted in favor of a record military spending bill that passed 377 to 48. It's really bipartisan. But now that he's a Republican, what does he have to do? He has to sit there and smile at all the lies. Though Van Drew really wasn't the type to want to ever pick a fight with the president. All he had to do to win election to the seat was to seem safe and sane and steady against perhaps the worst Republican candidate of anyone who ran in 2018. Van Drew ran against a guy named Seth Grossman. If you remember the name, it's because we've talked about him on this show. Grossman was an Atlantic City gadfly who said, quote, I don't want to be a check on Trump. I want to be the offensive line to help President Trump move his agenda forward. These were the first words out of Seth Grossman's mouth in his one official debate with Van Drew. I support President Trump. That's why I'm running. Grossman was so grossly unqualified that national Republicans refused to support him. The party did not give him their backing. Partly it's because of the things he said like this in a candidate forum. The question was, what's the best way to bring diversity to the Republican Party? Here was his suggestion. In my view, the best way to bring diversity to the Republican Party is for Republicans to openly say that the whole idea of diversity is a bunch of crap and un-American. At the debate and in the campaign, Grossman came off as, well, I'll use that phrase I used again to be kind, a gadfly. Here, for instance, was his answer to questions about the veracity of climate change. As far as climate change, yeah. Climate's been changing for five billion years. Go ask Noah. What Van Drew said to that pretty sensibly was, of course, climate change is real and we should be doing a lot about it. What he said today upon his defection to the Republican Party was this. I believe in the new Green Deal is something that we should never, ever even think about doing. I don't even know how anybody could bring that up. He presumably is also against the Green New Deal. Van Drew never really did change, actually. There aren't many stances that he'll now have to repudiate. I scanned his record for what he said about Trump, that he might have to walk back, and I didn't find anything. The sum total of his speeches in Congress were to praise the local fire department or a local Eagle Scout or local veterans from the House floor and to occasionally advance a bipartisan agenda, not by specifically and forcefully championing elements of that agenda, but just by talking about bipartisanship as a principle. 
I am asking for the membership of this House to think on the idea of bipartisanship. It is my belief that we owe it to the American people to work together. Van Drew, if a victim, and given the next election, we'll see to what extent he is victimized by the party change. But if he is a victim of the trend of parties growing further and further to the extremes, and I am not both sidesing this, but if he is a victim, it is more the case that he's victimized by the Republicans than the Democrats. It's true. It's really hard to be a center-right Democrat, if not impossible. But That means the only reason that this guy was ever in Congress in the first place, because Republicans allowed a far, far right candidate to become the nominee. In fact, the far right has to some extent, a large extent, taken over their party. Seth Grossman was as bad a candidate as can be imagined. And his defeat of a better-funded, better-endorsed primary opponent named Hirsch Singh, an Indian-American, showed that the party of Trump cannot be trusted to advance plausible candidates who could win everywhere. So Van Drew gained office as a result. A dentist by trade who literally lives in a town called Pleasantville, Van Drew wanted to sneak by in Congress, giving the occasional laurel and bromide on the House floor. He offered this bit of philosophy to C-SPAN soon after being sworn in. But the part that's good in dentistry is that, you know, when you do it right, as a rule, not always, but as a rule, everything works out because it is a science. Whereas in politics, I would maintain that almost nothing is a science and you never know how things are always going to work out. Even if you've done absolutely the right thing all the way down the line, it may still turn out in politics that it doesn't work out the way that you wanted it to. Jeff Van Drew, while a Democrat, wanted to build a bridge to Republicans when the Times called for a root canal. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He is against boondoggles, but is also vigilant against being finagled, codswalloped, or hornswoggled. Christina DeJosa, Gist producer, does not support tax breaks for movies in order to, say, fund affordable housing. But hear her out. Let's say you build a Death Star or the Shire. Just let people live in the Death Star or the Shire when you're done. Okay, height requirements may run afoul of local laws, but Gandalf can work it out. The Gist. Just noting that Jeff Andrews' defection means the entire dental caucus is on the Republican side of the aisle. Mike Simpson of Idaho, Paul Gosser of Arizona, Brian Babin of Texas, Drew Ferguson of Georgia, and Jeff Andrew. Also, the Republicans have the body's only podiatrist, Brad Wenstrup. These gentlemen will unlikely accept Obamacare. Oopro depro duperu, and thanks for listening.